Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Josh Gellers. Josh is an associate professor at the University of North Florida. His work spans animal, environmental, and artificial intelligence ethics and law. He's a research fellow with the Earth System Governance Project and is a Fulbright Scholar. He's the author of Rights for Robots, Artificial Intelligence, Animal and Environmental Law. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And I'd love to know what you think of the podcast. So why not write a review or give us some stars on whichever platform you use to listen. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hey, Josh, how are you? Good, thanks, Jamie. Nice to see you. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon for me. And it's great to have a chance to, you know, watch as, as close to a in real life conversation because we've spoken on Twitter quite a lot and had some fascinating conversations. So it's great to be able to talk face to face, even though it's, uh, you know, through, through a screen, but it's the best we can do at the moment. So, but thank you so much for making the time to join the conversation. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So as, as we've talked about before, the idea of these conversations is really to, uh, understand someone's personal philosophical journey and where they are now and it centers around these two really deep questions what's real and what matters morally and as you know i'm working on what i see as a very simple pluralistic philosophical baseline this idea of sentientism that combines the idea of a naturalistic approach to understanding reality so committed to using evidence and reason mm. and when it comes to what's uh, what matters morally and what we should have compassion for clue is in the name and it uses sentience as the defining characteristic and says that anything that has a you know capacity for subjective experience should be included in a moral circle but i'm very interested in having a broad range of conversations with people who you know agree with that philosophy and disagree with it as well so we'll see where the conversation goes but before we get sure. started on your view of those two central questions it would be great to just hear a little bit about your life and your work for people that aren't familiar with your focus yeah Thanks very much for having me, and I'd be delighted to kind of join you on this journey, and hopefully we can come to some interesting conclusions and provoke some interesting questions along the way. So like you said, my name is Josh Gellers. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida. I'm originally from South Florida, and I think back when I applied to grad school and I was articulating why I was interested in studying environmental politics and climate change, it revolved around growing up in South Florida and being exposed to hurricanes. And in college, I studied El Nino and Southern Oscillation. And I became really fascinated with this idea that there are these things that happen that humans have no control over, but what we can do is mitigate or adapt based on how we kind of tweak human institutions and things like that. So I didn't know where I was going with that at the time. And I've dabbled in, you know, I, I was a recovering law school applicant at one point and yeah. decided to stay in grad school. Uh, but I think I always kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And I think, honestly, sort of bearing the the brunt of natural hazards so early in life was was one of the more impactful things that drove me into this, you know, area of environmental issues and environmental politics. I did my bachelor's degree in political science. And then, <laughs> to be honest, through through very personal circumstances, which the day that I found out about a particular program that I wound up pursuing for my master's degree, I was pouring out coffee 
as part of my lab duties for, as the lab manager of a psychology department, I saw a, a little flyer for a program on climate and society. And I thought, well, I haven't studied climate change, but I'm really curious about you know doing an interdisciplinary kind of take on climate change. And again, I was coming at this as a social scientist, but I wanted to learn the science so that if I went and kept on going, that I would be a political scientist who could credibly speak about the science behind climate change. Yeah. And so I did that program. And then I went to uh, do my PhD in political science, where I was always doing, I started off interested in climate change and security, but then I took a course on environmental law. And I was like, wow, this is, this is where I want to be. And I read a paper on environmental rights written by uh, Jim May and Aaron Daly, who were at uh, Delaware Law School at Widener University. And I thought, why does the United States not have environmental rights when all these other countries do? It seems you know, kind of odd if we fashioned ourselves as moral leaders uh, throughout the world. And uh, that began the intellectual path that led me down um, statistics and to Nepal and Sri Lanka to try and find out the answer to that question. And then more recently, um, as someone who's done a lot of work on environmental rights, I saw that a lot of people who were writing on that subject had sort of pivoted to the rights of nature. And that's when I started to look at, okay, well, what interesting questions might there be to address in that particular area? And then I, 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 I really racked my brain to try and remember why I came into robots, but I think it might've actually <laughs> been through Twitter and seeing Sophia the robot or something or in an article and thinking like, oh, wow. So we have people who are claiming that these clearly non-human entities have rights. And I don't know enough about why, but so that's, you know, in part why I wanted to write a book. But then on the other hand, you have these robots that are increasingly being designed to look and behave like humans. So naturally, it sort of led me to this question of whether robots could have rights because of that, the intersection of those two phenomena. And um, I, I think I'll leave it there, but that's kind of like how I went from environmental things all the way to robots. Wow. So it's quite a journey from uh, the sort of visceral experience of the risk of hurricanes through a random flyer through Twitter taking you to robots. But yeah, it's a fascinating journey. And we'll come back to some of the themes about your, you know, your current work and your your new book in the final section of the conversation as well. But to start, it would be really good to sort of roll the clock back to those South Florida days and answer that first question of what's real. So for many people, this is a story about whether they grew up in a sort of naturalistic or an atheistic or a religious household and how those sort of views about reality and how to engage in it and how to understand it have changed and shifted over time and where people are now. I'd be interested to know your story on that front. Sure. So... I grew up in a Jewish household, and mm. my mother was not particularly religious, but my father grew up in a conservative Jewish household, and his brother uh, later in life became a rabbi. And so, you know, the parental or the the paternal side of my family was much more religious than the maternal side. I went through and uh, got bar mitzvahed, but I think, I don't know exactly when it was in my life, but I think... I always had a lot of doubt about religion in general, and I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but some of that might be just percolation from, again, having a you know, sort of a culturally Jewish upbringing, but at the same time, um, a split within my, my yeah. uh, nuclear family and how religious it, it actually was. My mother you know, wasn't uh, bat mitzvahed, and I think... It was, it, it in many ways, probably maps onto a lot of people's experiences because 
my mother had a lot of tragedy in her life and her, I think, conclusion was there couldn't possibly be a God if he allow all these things to happen. So she kind of written off religion pretty strongly. And then again, my father from his more conservative Jewish upbringing was much more forgiving. uh, And, but I, you know, I had some experiences along the way that made me doubt. And there's two in particular, I think that maybe stand out. One is earlier in life, I was visiting my uncle. We, we went to a, an Orthodox service on, I think, a Saturday morning. And so, you know, it's very traditional. Men are separated from women. Yeah. You only have men perform the service. And um, the rabbi even made a joke at one point when he said something relating to uh, one of the prayers that, you know, the from the mouths of babes or something. And almost as if on cue, a baby started crying from across the partition and everyone had a good laugh on it. But to me, it signified the fact that here we are in, gosh, it was probably the 1990s, but like women are not allowed to even participate in, yeah. in this uh, uh, service. And we're just hearing them. And so they exist, but they're not really here. Um, that was one thing that I found interesting. And then the other happened on the day of my bar mitzvah, when, uh, because I went to a reform temple, we had uh, a split bar mitzvah. So two people, basically my uncle was very upset about this. He thought you you could handle doing uh, a single, you know, uh, Torah portion and Haftarah portion. But the way that a reform temple, at least ours worked was they divided it in two. So we got half as much work, half as much learning and reading and all that. So yeah. um, the person I was paired with was a friend of mine. So that was all well and good. But um the rabbi during the during the ceremony, which by the way has the family members and friends of my my pal, and then my family members and friends. And after you bar mitzv- you, you get bar mitzvah, you can go on to what's called Hebrew high school. And I was very ambivalent about that. And I had, you know, other things I was interested in. I, or I, I wanted to be on the debate team. I, I, this is seventh grade. So I wasn't quite yeah. there yet. But um the rabbi said in front of everyone something like We've received a check from his family, but we're still waiting on a check from my family. And I was so embarrassed that he would say that and put us all on the spot. I was like, you know what? I'm not doing it at all. You have made yeah. the decision for me. If if what's important to you is that you get money from my family, then I don't want to be part of this at all. And so that was the last time I went to that temple, except for attending another bar mitzvah. But it was a real that was a real kind of watershed moment for me and, and where I was religiously that, that that became the focus of the bar mitzvah was whether or not we had paid money to continue our, our uh, Hebrew studies. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's kind of a, a lot of, uh, you know, what happened in my case, but I'd say as far as what you're interested in and the topic of my book and all that, I don't know if a lot of that came from my religious upbringing aside from some of the core values that were brought along with it. But, you know, if you think back to, and what we have on our doorway, the mezuzah, right, mm-hmm. which has a little kosher scroll inside of it. I knew about the kosher laws, but I didn't really affix a kind of ethical orientation to them. I view them as more like public health laws. Like, yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be eating these things that are considered to be tray for unclean because it could have public health implications. We didn't have, you know, refrigeration. We didn't have salting and curing when those were written. So maybe these were actually just designed to protect humans. Yeah, um, yeah. So I didn't really think about that from a real ethical perspective. But yeah, I think a lot of that, I think, came maybe as a result of just my, my, the teachings from my parents and 
things like that, but not so much my religious upbringing. I honestly, I, you know, yeah. I didn't really learn about Jewish environmental ethics until I started writing the book. So. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many fascinating themes of both religious and non-religious thought that runs through, you know, animal ethics and environmental ethics and, you know, for good and for ill, right? I think it can have positive and negative implications, but it, the journey you described was fascinating. And the people I've spoken to so far that have sort of moved away from a religious upbringing, for some people, it's, it is more an epistemological thing where they're like, I just don't see the evidence or I see incoherences or inconsistencies here. And, you know, that it just sort of fades away from them because they don't see the relevance or because they learn about lots of different religions and start to see it, you know, as a something that's much more likely a human construct than, um, mm. than, a, than a supernatural re revealed one. But there's is often a common thread. And you just touched on some examples where people see the behavioral or the ethical implications of a particular re religious organization. And again, that makes them sort of sit up and go, hold on, that just doesn't feel right, whether it's you know condemning people to hell or whether it's you know sexism or homophobia or you know certain other practices that can constrain freedom in ways that you know don't seem to support it it's quite interesting the mix of different things that lead people away from you know that that way of thinking but have you um you mentioned particularly you've done some interesting travel to places like nepal as well have you had much experience with any of the sort of eastern religions or maybe even the non-religious supernatural thinking, whether it's spiritualism and paganism and some of those other schools of thought, were you ever drawn to any of those or have you been sort of more solidly naturalistic in your view, having left the supernatural side of Judaism? Um, that's a good question. I, I think, I wouldn't say I'm certainly an expert on you know, Eastern religions or anything like, I never took a religion class. I've, I've, been to temples. I have tried to expose myself to different ways of thinking. I lived down the street from a Buddhist uh, monastery a couple of years ago, mm. and so I would see uh, you know people clad in robes and things like that on occasion. Uh, and I looked up their website, but I never actually uh, you know went to a meeting or or a prayer session or anything like that. But I think some of it was just in a, gaining an appreciation in the in the course of my travels for different ways of thinking. Mm. I don't know to the extent that I would say that they, I really kind of brought them into my own worldview. But one experience in particular, I guess maybe there's two that are worth mentioning. One is when I did my master's degree on climate and society, that was really the first time that I ever thought in a very concerted way about the way, the role that of animals in my own diet. And that yeah. was mostly because of the carbon footprint, not because of the ethical ramifications. But I, you know, it was, um, it's kind of like when I was in, later in, in a, doctoral program, I did a, what we call an alternative spring break. And so I went on a trip with, a, but mostly it was a college students to Northern California. And we did trail maintenance and habitat restoration projects. And we learned about different things. And I found myself taking on a leadership role because of my knowledge of environmental ethics and trying to frame our experiences in a way that was intelligible to different students, most of whom were Asian. There was a few uh, Caucasian students who had their own sort of ethical dilemmas, like one student really felt bad about ripping up plants because she yeah. said, we were, were told these are invasive, but they're already here. So who are we to rip them out of the ground? And I said, here's kind of the perspective that you're taking on, say, the right of those plants to exist in that habitat, as opposed to our more scientific perspective, which is this is bad for the ecosystem. But that was kind of, again, later. And um when I was on my Fulbright in Sri Lanka, I was at an Airbnb in Colombo, and the man who I was renting from was a very devout Buddhist. 
And uh, one night, there's two two related experiences that come to mind. One night, he heard backing going on in my part, and th- these are uh, concrete floors, so it really you know echoes. And he was, I was in the the sort of mother-in-law suite area of the house, and he, I think he lived above me. And he said, you know, he called me on my cell phone and said, "What's going on?" I said, "There's a spider." And he was like, "Listen, when you have a spider, next time just call me and I'll come and pick it up." So you know, the, a day goes by or something and there's a spider and I had this like really poisonous stuff made in China, I think, that I bought at a grocery store and I sprayed the spider, uh, but it disappeared somewhere. And then the next day I saw it again. So I called him and uh, he came by the apartment and he was like, he just took the spider in his hand, which would have terrified me. And he uh, he said, he is so weak. And then he like brought him outside and he set him out on the uh, the rocks that were part of the front yard. And, you know, it was a very different kind of approach. And I thought my, myself, I'm thinking, of course, he's weak. I just sprayed him with this like toxic chemicals a day ago. He's probably like clinging to life. Um, and then he, he had a library in that same Airbnb. And one of them, uh, one of the books he had in that library was a kind of Buddhist take on animal ethics. And so among other things that I casually read, uh, was that book. And I was really curious from the Buddhist perspective, how did they see uh, animals in the kind of their ethical universe and also the role that they play in their diet? And again, at this point, I'm like, I'm in my late 20s. So I, I, I'm i aware of the fact that Buddhism has this particular perspective, yeah. but it was interesting to read about it from Buddhists themselves and just to see how much it was focused on things like suffering and pain and how that is very universalized into all creatures uh, and and being sort of a one with the environment. And so it's not really about the individual suffering of the creature, but rather how we want to be in the world. Mm. And that was sort of my first real baptism, if you will, into like Buddhist ethics, which I wrote about someone in the book in the context of the environment and animal ethics as well. Yeah. And, and how would you describe... I guess what your morality is based on now. So if I was to say, you know, what, how do you decide which things matter and which things don't morally? Is that something that shifted over time? And is there a simple way of describing that now? Because you've already hinted at the, you know, the animal ethics implications of maybe the, you know, kosher uh, prohibitions and rules about that theme coming through in a sort of compassionate Buddhism and from your thinking about the climate as well. And it's interesting that quite often people's concern about non-human things, you know, including the environment, for example, can still be very much be driven by human concerns. Mm-hmm. Whereas for other people, they go on a journey where they actually start to accord moral consideration, you know, directly to some non-human things as well. And many of us do that very naturally, right? So I have a, you know, a rescue puppy here, right? Most people, when it comes to companion animals, very naturally extend that moral consideration to some mm-hmm. types of non-humans but would find it complete anathema to extend moral consideration to, to other types of humans, whether those be biological or non-biological. So is, is there a simple way of summarizing what you think yeah, morality should be based on and how which which entities count? Uh, or is that even a frame you <laughs> think is useful? <laughs> I mean, honestly, the best I can say is that I think in the course of learning, I have evolved and the process of having a moral perspective has been very sort of dialogical with the things that I've read. Mm. Uh, I think if nothing else, it just makes me more empathetic, not only to 
you know, non-humans, but also to other ways of thinking, or I like the phrase other ways of worlding. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, as a sort of a side note, both my parents loved the uh, American Southwest and Native Americans. And so growing up, I read a lot of Native American, Native American folklore as well. And we took a lot of trips out there. And so even that, which was ostensibly outside my own kind of religious upbringing, I was keenly aware of the fact that there are these other ways of worlding, these other ways of knowing. And even though I maybe didn't think of it quite in these terms at that time, I didn't think of them as worse than mine or less legitimate. And I've really kind of carried that through in a lot of my other thinking. So, I mean, pluralism is maybe a good way to think about it. I know that sort of is a dangerous way to to potentially lead into relativism. Mm. But I, I do. I struggle with that. And I think that's actually good. Yeah. Um, you know, because I want to say there are certain universals, but I feel like I'm a little bit like Jack Donnelly, uh, the human rights theorist on that note, which when, when he says there are some human rights that are relatively universal, th- that's kind of the best yeah. <laughs> I can really I can really summarize because I don't know how I would even really classify myself. I would say I aspire to be more ecocentric. Um, yeah. And I, I view that term extremely broadly, not to only mean animals, but also nature as well. And maybe this is the Jewish guilt part sticking out, <laughs> but I I feel guilty a lot. And I think that's the moral spider sense going off where I feel like I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing enough. I'm not practicing what I preach. And it gets me to think about constantly, you know, how I am in the world, how I treat other things. So I don't have a really concise answer for you, yeah. but I, I think learning is honest, learning and respecting are, are so crucial to that project. So that's why I'm so less, you know, amenable to saying that, you know, I have the right way. And I'm very skeptical of when people say, especially in the robot rights kind of literature, the question is stupid because rights are this. I'm like, whoa, yeah. whoa, <laughs> who are you to say that rights are this? Maybe what you think of as rights is very different from what this other group says constitute rights. And that doesn't mean that yours is more legitimate or better in any way. And so I just have some humility, I think, about how I conceive of morality in the world. And I'm not willing to put my foot down and say, I have the only legitimate way of thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, I have deep respect for that approach because I think it comes from, as you say, it comes from a humility and it comes from a compassion for these other groups and these other ways of thinking that I think is deep and, and well-meaning. and. And I also think it reflects just the reality of the fact that whatever our views might be about ultimate moral truths or whether even moral truth, truths exist, we regardless, we have to negotiate these things to come up with laws and rules and you know ways of ways of living together as well. So there's a I think there's a there's an open-minded humility and compassion there, and there's a practical recognition that whatever you, you know, unless you just want to impose these views on someone, we've got to negotiate them. But you, you hinted at it already is that there is a danger, and I think some fall foul of this danger, that they go from that compassionate, open-minded, pluralistic approach to something that is almost completely relativistic. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned on a few of these conversations before that I've had conversations with people who I think are compassionate, positive, well-meaning people who will actually openly and directly say that they cannot bring themselves to condemn you know, the practice in some cultures of female genital mutilation or throwing gay people off roofs because they say well who are we to judge right it's mm-hmm. their culture it's their different it's a different way of knowing different set of norms maybe that's fine 
And and to my mind, that's taken you know an open-minded compassion and a willingness to learn about other ways of thinking to a point that it's completely excluding enormous tranches of awful oppression from moral consideration because we're according frankly too much respect to a group of powerful people that have decided to oppress a group of others so is is there a way we can keep that open-minded humility and that pluralism but without the dangers of a relativistic approach that basically in its extreme can feel like it's almost abandoning morality completely and saying is suffering bad? Maybe, maybe not. Is killing people bad? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it's all up for negotiation. Now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but I think you're right. And I, I go back to the relatively universal Jack Donnelly quote. I yeah. think that, um, so Anna Greer has written uh, a lot and, and has inspired some of my work. And um, when I try to formulate what I call a critical environmental ethic, there are certain underlying prongs to that that I think are, are useful to think through. And, and a couple of them are compassion and resilience. Yeah. And like you said, throwing someone on a roof, I don't care what culture you're from, it would be you'd be hard pressed to argue that that is in some sense a compassionate thing to do. Even if we're talking about euthanasia, that's probably not the most compassionate way of helping someone to undergo you know, assisted suicide or something like that. So maybe we need to, to tease out a bit more uh, as far as what we understand these terms to mean. But I think starting from a place of like compassion, making the whole world more more resilient, having a kind of sensitivity to the needs of others, whomever they may be, wherever yeah. they may be. I think that's also one of my frustrations with uh, political ideology in the United States is it seems to me, and you know, I just concluded a survey on climate change attitudes, pretty obvious that you could separate camps into you know, one group that cares about people they don't know and another group that cares about people they do know. Yeah. And almost everything falls along those lines. And I think that without being too heady, it makes me a more compassionate person if I care about people or other things or other non-humans that aren't myself or that I will never perhaps affiliate with. I'm not gonna get any you know, bonus points for saying that, but I think that we, have to, we definitely have to start from a, a point where there's certain ground rules that are established as far as yeah. the things we're trying to achieve. And then we can talk and we can debate about what those terms mean. But I think we, I would be uncomfortable saying that we should adopt a completely relativistic mindset because then you do get locked into the kinds of conundrums that you just spoke of. Yeah, yeah, that's, that makes sense. And I think that the way you describe that compassion as a sort of grounding, it's like a safety net, I think is really important because it does enable you to put a break on relativism where you could see clear harms being done. And I think there's another difficult dynamic between a sort of individualistic approach and a collectivist approach where sometimes people's compassion will be felt for a collective, but then they'll fail to have compassion for some of the people, individuals within that group that are being oppressed. Whereas I think if we have that compassion for every single individual that warrants compassion, that provides a sort of safety net that we can still be open-minded, pluralistic, we can keep learning, but we don't just ignore any suffering or, you know, or death because we have a compassion that, you know, is ultimately quite a granular level to try and, yeah, ultimately reduce suffering and, you know, enhance flourishing, which sounds sort of obvious, but um, but sometimes I think people's way of thinking can take them away from that fundamental where they can find themselves in a position where they're justifying needless suffering or justifying needless needless death for reasons that, you know, I, I don't quite compute. But I think you're right, that sort of having that basic line compassion in there is a is almost like a safety net. It's like a check on a slide to relativism. So. 
it's a it's a question you can ask yourself uh, because I think one of the problems we run into is maybe the compassion that we maybe the flip of what you're talking about the compassion for people that we do or or even animals uh, that we have some kind of direct interface with and then once you go further afield in terms of the sort of the ladder of abstraction mm. then it becomes more and more distant ethically and morally and becomes difficult for people to envision themselves as caring or you know having compassion for whoever that might be. And I'm reminded of a, a kind of experiment that I heard about on NPR where they had uh, sort of Biden supporters and Trump supporters have dinner together and not talk about anything political. Yeah. And and what they found was that there was a lot of you know common interests and you know humanity and, and things that they shared in common, whether it's about having a family or just trying to make ends meet. And so that kind of humanized each other in their own eyes. And because they decided to put politics aside, they couldn't talk about things like the harmful consequences of deportation policies. And I think to me that that misses an opportunity to say, okay, I think you are a good person and you have good intentions. But when you publicly express that in the form of a vote that results in suffering, you are failing to live up to the standard that we have sort of agreed yeah. upon. And that's a difficult step to go to from, from me talking to you and feeling like you're a good person to then trying to understand the motivations behind some of your publicly expressed opinions and, and voting behavior. Yeah, and I, I agree. I, and I, I find the sort of political polarization in the, you know, it's an understandable human predilection for tribalism and othering, you know, deeply frustrating in many fields. And, you know, politics is a classic example. It's certainly in your country, in my country, and many, many others at the moment. But, but partly because I think it does obscure that sort of latent common ethical decency that most people have. I don't, I don't subscribe to these sort of naive views that, you know, that we're sort of perfect ethical beings that are then corrupted by culture and social norms. But I think most people, you know, love their families. Most people don't want to cause needless suffering. Most people in most of their lives use evidence and reason. And it's very easy to skip past what I think is a very substantial common ground and, you know, and erode that in in sad ways. And and often the nature of our discourse is we basically ignore that common ground and focus on the stuff we <laughs> stuff we want to fight about. Mm. Um, whereas that common ground is still there. And we've and it's it's interesting to discuss that that sort of I think you and I share that grounding in compassion, and we probably have slightly different methods about how we might go about that. And you've talked about that that sort of pluralistic approach, but even in a pluralistic or a more relational approach and the sort of hybrid approaches you take, at some point it's still interesting to think about which of the entities warrant direct moral consideration or should even be part of that negotiated process. And that, again, is really interesting because for most people, you know, they will automatically grant that sort of moral consideration to, you know, certainly the humans they know and, you know, people have different moral circles within the human species. And we know how many problems there still are to resolve around sexism and racism and caste discrimination and homophobia and all the other types of distinctions within the human species. But at least conceptually, you know, after the Second World War, most countries signed up to a universal declaration of human rights. I think most people would also at least conceptually say, you know, it's generally a good idea. If if you're a human, you count morally and needlessly causing you to suffer or die is in a isolation and, you know, a negative thing. But to go beyond that can be quite challenging. And people go beyond that in thinking about non-human animal ethics and thinking about do they actually have intrinsic moral worth? You know, is needlessly causing suffering to them negative or is it neutral? Similar in the fields of artificial intelligence and robot thinking per your recent book, but also in the fields of, you know, ecocentrism or biocentrism, where people will say, not just we should care about the environment because of its impact on humans or 
non-human animals, but we should care about it intrinsically in its own right as well. How would you describe the best approximation for how we can decide which entities should even be considered as we're working out a pluralistic ethical approach? So this was not necessarily a question that I had originally set out to answer in the course of doing the research for my book, but it was what I set out to do a couple things was um, to determine who is entitled to or what perhaps is entitled to rights. And those are moral rights or legal rights, which yeah. have different sort of approaches, um, which you know I, I could talk plenty about. And then I realized at the very end that when I was writing all this, I thought, okay, that's great. And there are lots of people who have written about, you know, how do we expand the moral universe and things like that. And I didn't have a kind of normative answer for, for aside from the fact that we could take these different routes to moral and legal rights, how do we determine who ultimately is, is included in those conversations or eligible? And that's when I had to come up with a critical environmental ethic, which is infused with things like the, the Anthropocene, new materialism. Like I needed all of these things to draw upon because I, I didn't have the language. I didn't have an understanding of how I could formulate that normative ethical agenda in a way that would provide an answer to that question. And, and so, and, yeah. And that's, sorry to cut across you, because I think it's interesting to, we need to answer the question of um, which entities are involved in the conversation, but some entities might warrant being involved in the conversation that don't have the capability to be in the yes. conversation, and but they still need to be considered in our conversation. So I guess it's it's both of those things. It's it's not just who's in the negotiation, but also, you know, who it, who's the subject of the moral consideration too, but. Absolutely. And I, so I call that the Anthropocene dilemma, which is that on the one hand, the sort of Cartesian binaries that we've been used to, man and nature, yeah. uh, nature and culture and that sort of thing, they've been dissolved because it's slippery, perhaps more so than ever before, about where one thing begins and another ends. And so if we accept that the, there aren't these sort of clean cut categories anymore, then it invites a conversation about, you know, using some language like assemblages and hybrids where whether it's transhumanism and a person who has a pacemaker or uh, someone who uh, was, you know, raised by wolves or, and they're feral and, you know, are they more like a human or more like an animal? Uh, there's a, a great science fiction film on Netflix that I don't think a lot of people have talked about, which is called I Am Mother, which starts from the premise a young girl who's raised in sort of a self-contained, almost like ship. And the only entity that she's ever interacted with was her artificial intelligence mother. So she is completely raised without any sort of human interaction. And the only grounding morally, ethically, and otherwise comes from artificial intelligence. So what would it look like if that person were the last person on earth? What sorts of values might they have? I think it's just a really fascinating thought experiment. Yeah, I'll have to look so, that up. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting movie, and um, I think that's part of it is is this Anthropocene dilemma where we these binaries have been dissolved, but then on the other hand, we're still the ones who are carrying the cards and making the determinations because we set up the very systems through which we these determinations are made. Yeah. So this is uh, the best response to this I've seen was in a, a legal decision that I, I, I talked about in the book that advances what they call an ecocentric anthropic view, which is we should view things in you know, kind of an ecocentric, holistic manner. We are but one part of a larger system. But then the anthropic piece is, but there is a special place that humans have 
if only because we are the ones who are making the decisions yeah. about who is welcome into these universes. So taking this critical ethic, which is the normative justification for uh, making these kinds of assessments, and then accepting that this is, I, I like the term kin-centric because it is sort of an homage to the indigenous worldviews as well. Yeah. If we think of it that way, then it kind of provides us with some more flexibility to think more critically about which entities belong in those universes. And the, one example that comes to mind is in the state of Florida, I think it was last year, we passed a law that would ban childlike sex dolls, which seemingly uh, the basis for that could be you know, an, an affront to human dignity, yeah. uh, obscenity. These are things we do not want to encourage in people. There's the Kantian view that the kind of behavior that we engage in with non-humans could have a spillover effect on humans as well. So yeah. we should be, the way that we behave should be a reflection on how we want to behave towards other humans. If we want to encourage good behavior. Even if you accept all of that, I found it very interesting because I thought, you know, this is approaching a kind of animal welfare argument, but with respect to a clearly non-human entity um, that at this point is not even like a humanoid robot. It's just yeah. a doll. Yeah. So yeah. no um, one's claiming that can suffer. Yeah. No, although there's lots of interesting work on that. People like John Danaher have written on, yeah. on sex robots quite a bit. There are also some interesting, I don't remember their names at this point, but there is literature that, for example, makes the argument that humanoid sex robots might be a really positive development, a sex positive development for people who feel you know, culturally ostracized, whether it's because of homophobia or other sorts of things, because it would allow them to express their individuality and their sexual attitudes in a way that's safe and, and so on. So there are some other interesting arguments coming out of queer theory and things like that, yeah. feminist theory, that I've, I've just begun to kind of like crack the surface of. But I think it is worth exploring those ideas in greater detail because, again, it gets to the, the interest of marginalized populations. And I have to acknowledge and accept the fact that I'm coming from a very privileged positionality as a white male in the West who's heterosexual, yeah. you know, who's middle class and all those things. And like, I, I'm not the only valid perspective in the world. And so I just want to kind of wade in the waters of other perspectives elevate them and and hopefully give them some breathing room to be able to be expressed. And I think that it's just a real challenge to arrive at, to get back to your question, who belongs in the moral universe when, you know, again, growing up and learning about, you know, every sort of different deity that Native American tribes had, you know, it gives you a certain compassion for nature. Uh, and then, you, like you pointed out, and what Randy Abate calls uh, the community of the voiceless, Yes. Those are entities that do not have the wherewithal to be able to participate in the decision-making process because it's not structured for them. And so that's a question I think is, you know, from the legal standpoint, also worth pursuing. How do we go about bringing them into the conversation? And we've seen, I, I talked with Craig Kaufman, who's a rights of nature scholar at the University of Oregon about this just last week. And, you know, he talked about the fact that we've seen this sort of parallel conversation about the rights of nature on the one hand, but then also ecocide. Right. Ecocide is a much more easily digestible argument because it treats harm to nature from a criminal perspective. And we're all much more comfortable with a criminal law perspective than we are from a rights based perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the the approach you take there, again, to my mind, 
links the two sides, the sort of what's real and what matters, because part of the reason why, you know, secular worldviews and sentientism are committed to evidence and reason is because they need to have that epistemological humility, you know, a radical open-mindedness to lots of different types of evidence and different ways of thinking. And I think you can apply that in the moral realm as well. And I think that's 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 largely what you're trying to do, as you say, swim in those waters and be radically open-minded and mm-hmm. see what emerges from that. And you've hinted already at one of the possible problems of a I guess a relational view in that if if a subset of powerful normal normally humans dominates a conversation and can frame morality and categories in a way that is self-serving we know where that can lead right it can lead to awful human ethics situations but i'd argue that's largely where we've ended up with non-human animals and animal farming as well in that human cultures have generally decided for self-serving reasons that while we care about charismatic wildlife because we enjoy looking at it and we care about companion animals because we enjoy being with them so we want those two categories of animals to to live and flourish in limited ways when it comes to non-charismatic wild animals you know vermin invasive species you know lots of other categories that we've basically invented to justify what we're about to do and critically farmed animals we again as a powerful group of entities in a relational way have defined a set of categories that enable us to cause catastrophic harm that's one reason why i recognize the challenges of using a sort of more scientific uh, characteristic of an entity uh, because there's a danger that we impute again our own you know perspectives and our own views into that and we impose it negatively but that's part of the reason why i like the idea of sentientism focused on sentience is because it's almost a bulwark against those relational approaches that risk categorizing some sentient beings as not warranting moral consideration and therefore we can harm them so so there's a danger to me of moral circles being drawn too tightly in a self-serving way by the humans who you know just happen to be lucky enough to have the power to drive the negotiation to to set the rules and the laws so that's I mean, but that, that's partly the you know question we had before about how do you avoid that slip from pluralism into a relativism that excludes you know some suffering beings from moral consideration and it'd be interesting to come back to that as well but there's to maybe a lesser risk but there is some risk at going too far the other way in that i i see that the default mindset of most environmentalists and conservationists they've gone from you know concern with the human species and often quite a broad healthy concern with the human species and because of the threat to the human species of climate change and environmental threats and catastrophe have then jumped to a very broad ecocentric or biocentric or holistic concern for the environment which i think is a you know generally a positive step i like broader moral circles but it's driven if it's driven by frankly an anthropocentric concern right the reason we care about the environment and the ecosystem is because of a fear for humans there's a risk again that it excludes vast swathes of to my mind sentient beings mm-hmm. who um, have deep moral valence and you know sort of so so the classic is an environmentalist who will con- seem to care more emotionally about the rights of a river or a rock or a mountain than they would over trillions of farmed animals. So while I'm quite, I'm, I'm more worried about a narrow moral circle because we know what exclusion can do and the damage it can do. And I'm reasonably relaxed about people broadening their moral circle beyond sentient beings. I'm reasonably relaxed about that as long as we don't exclude any of the sentient beings as we go. And, you know, much of the environmental movement seems to do that. It seems to be really a reflection of an anthropocentric concern rather than genuinely a concern for 
certainly the suffering of other of other types of beings. So I don't I don't know how you respond to those two concerns, like too narrow, too broad, mm-hmm. and whether there are ways of mitigating those risks, or even if you do if you do think they're risks. I do. I, I think it's you know I didn't answer that question in my book um, in part because so we know that personhood is something that is often achieved discursively. You are a person, therefore now all of a sudden you have entitlements and things like that. Yeah. And then rights are contentious. And this is one thing that I always push against people who advance natural rights kind of arguments. I said, you know, if think about the context, if we were having this conversation 200 years ago, there are certain classes of human that wouldn't have rights. So your natural rights argument is is essentially nonsense on stilts. And what we're having to do today is is broaden. So I'm like you, much more in favor of thinking critically about how we broaden one of my chief complaints has been, and this is not specifically with respect to sentientism, but from I can talk about that in a second. The sort of approaches, the actual sort of legal approaches that I cover in the book on animal rights all tend to be under-inclusive. Yes. And that's not necessarily yeah. a reflection of um, sentientism, but in trying to resolve, okay, how do we bring them into our system or our institutions? It tends to focus on basically, like you said, either they're only wildlife or only domesticated or only farmed animals. And to me, that's that needs to be resolved uh, yeah. because there are clearly animals within all three of those categories that if we're going to apply a particular moral criteria would be eligible. I mean, pigs are a great example, right? So in, in some ways of thinking about animal rights, a pig, because it would be in the slaughterhouse and not in my house, would be of less moral you know, value than say a dog. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and to, so, our, to yeah. our earlier point, the pig doesn't care, right? The pig doesn't mm-hmm. care how it's been classified. Right. It suffers, it, the same, it, it suffers the same way, right? Yeah. So, uh, and there was a personal example I had that I, I thought of, but it just came back to me that I thought about when I watched a documentary on PETA years ago. And when I was fishing as a boy in middle school, uh, we were using live crickets as bait. And I remember taking the hook and running it up through the abdomen of the cricket and the cricket just shook violently. And I thought if it could scream, it would. It clearly yeah. seemed upset. And this is ha- something that's small. It's an insect. It's you know has an exoskeleton. And it didn't seem happy with me taking a hook up through its stomach. And so I thought, you know, but th- and I didn't have animals growing up too. I didn't have like fun animals. Yeah. I had I had fish and birds and hermit crabs. Um, It isn't until the last year that I had a dog and and all the kind of wondrous things that come with that. But I thought from that cricket example, anything that has rights attributed to it should be thinking about things that could feel potentially, but that shouldn't be just one classification of animals because of where they happen to live. The cricket seemed just as upset as a dog when you kick it. Not that I've done that. So I think... That's but one of my, my chief concerns about that. And then with respect specifically to sentientism, again, coming out of this, coming at this subject from someone who is not a philosopher, who is an environmental politics person, I thought, whoa, the philosophers seem to disagree about this. I don't think I could tell them what the answer is. They seem to have spent a lot more time and energy on it than I have. But so on the one hand, while I appreciate the kind of scientific epistemology then we get back into the, okay, well, the indigenous groups have a very different kind of epistemological approach, which doesn't necessarily take an anthropocentric view. Yeah. It takes their own kind of ecocentric view. And so 
I can't say that that one is less legitimate because their epistemologies don't sort of equate with our kind of, you know, current scientific standards. So and I, and I, I think this I, is I didn't come to a conclusion with that, but it's, it's definitely something worth continuing to discuss. Yeah, I agree. And I think there there is a real danger of you know, disregarding sort of indigenous ways of thinking or cultural ways of thinking of different traditions. We need real humility there. I think the thing that leads me sometimes to cut through that, and maybe I can seem a little bit harsh and, and clinical about that, is by taking the perspective of the individual entity itself. And so to put it in a slightly trite way, you know, that the wild pig doesn't care whether it's a pet, whether it's been farmed or whether it's killed you know, with respect by an indigenous tribes person who's following a pattern of cultural behavior that's existed for tens of thousands of years. So I don't mean to disregard that stuff because those things are really important to the humans involved, right? They're deep cultural identities, but the, from the perspective of the be- the animal or actually from the perspective of the human, if we're talking about certain cultures or traditions that cause harm for humans, it's it's the perspective of the the being that's subject to the oppression and the harm that cuts through a lot of that for me. So I think I share the humility and the open-mindedness and the readiness to consider different ways of thinking, uh, but I'm unsympathetic to allowing those different ways of thinking justifying the causing of objective suffering and harm to to a sentient being, if that makes sense. I mean, a couple other things. One is that, you know, this is the epistemological challenge that I, I didn't feel like I could resolve, but... yeah. You know, we have an in- increasing evidence that, for example, trees are able to communicate in some manner, um, you know, to the extent that they experience pain in the same way. That's sort of the, the almost the black box of consciousness issue, which in the last chapter of the book, I try to go criteria by criteria or what the literature calls properties based approaches and say how there's always some kind of real strong weakness with saying that this is the one singular approach. And so, uh, again, not someone who has you know, actually undertaken studies of consciousness. And a, there's also kind of a pluralistic view about what that means. That's a kind of alternative, but those people yeah. would be arguing almost the same thing. They would say, well, if it's conscious, but the epistemological problem is that we don't really have a great way of capturing consciousness. I would argue we probably have better evidence about sentience, but then we still get into the slippery slope sorts of problems that yeah. you've identified. Agree, agree. And I think even there, it's important to go back to that you know, the naturalistic side of the epistemology, because what what it's suggesting is that all of our beliefs outside of former systems should be provisional, they should be probabilistic, they should be prudent. You know, we don't we don't have perfect knowledge about anything outside of formal systems like maths in a way. So so that acknowledges that, you know, the concept of sentience might have fuzzy boundaries, it might be uncertain, our judgment of whether a pig or a dog or a tree is sentient and to what degree is uncertain it's probabilistic we should always be open to new evidence so it has to have that humility built into it we can't be cut and dried and perfect but then we aren't with any concept and i think those challenge those epistemological challenges you know just because it's not it certainly isn't perfect we shouldn't pretend it's perfect don't undermine the fact i think it's 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 useful in the same way as you know concepts like well-being or happiness or life are also fuzzy and Mm-hmm. Yeah, negotiated and 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 we're always open to new evidence. Um, and sentientism itself doesn't actually have a list of, you know, what species or what entities are sentient. It just says follow the science. Mm-hmm. So so I, you know I, I acknowledge those those sort of challenges to it, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise, right? There are there's plenty of uncertainty out there, and we should act with with humility in that context. And I was the, just going to say that's the epistemic humility that I think is really crucial. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And my 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 reading of the current science is that we are developing a much richer appreciation of plant 
communication and behavior and the same for fungi. But my understanding of the, the scientific consensus, and this might well shift, is that so far there's no evidence that they have a subjective experience. So they, they can't experience suffering. They can be harmed and they can be damaged and they communicate in complex ways, but they don't have the um, evolutionary uh, drives or history. They don't have the the behavioral indicators that would infer sentience and the mobility that would infer sentience. And they don't seem to have, frankly, the information processing architecture that would enable them to, you know, to my mind, sentience is a, a class of advanced information processing and my phone can't run PowerPoint. I don't think a plant or a tree can run sentience even in a mineral sense but others others disagree as, as you say you know there are some people who think that even photons and electrons might be minimally conscious in some way so who knows <laughs> so what is what is your take on the sort of uh further categorizations that people like stephen wise have come up with where they say you know we're looking at a range of practical autonomy and it's yeah. these different groupings and so there are groupings that are you know higher practical autonomy those are the ones that should have more rights or something like that so I, i'm quite sympathetic to those approaches so so some again sentientism is a sort of irritatingly broad platform because <laughs> it just has naturalism and a sort of sentiocentric moral circle so there are some sentientists who will insist that as soon as something has passed some sort of boundary of sentience and i'd argue there probably isn't one it's probably fuzzy but they would say as soon as something is classed as sentient and, you know, vegans, for example, tend to use the classification animal as a, an indicator of uh, as that. They said, right, once you're in that club, you deserve equal moral consideration. And they will justify that by saying that, you know, fine, the simpler animals might have a less rich sentience than a human. But who are we to argue that has less moral valence? Because they can say, yes, a human might be able to experience suffering and flourishing in ways that a simpler animal can't. But maybe humans also have ways of mitigating suffering too, and that you know, if we're undergoing physical pain, we can understand why that might be, or what the purpose of it might be, or we can meditate. To, and maybe some of the simpler animals haven't. Um, personally, I don't subscribe to that view. I, do, I think sentience is a massively rich class of advanced information processing that developed really as a, a way of an entity modelling itself in an environment. And I think you know our experience of consciousness and sentience as a subset of that really is just what it feels like to run that class of information processing. So I think it has a potentially unbounded range and richness of possible experiences, good and bad, that you know, the transhumanists will tell you all about. And some people mm -hmm. experiment with with you know drugs or meditation or you know other types of experiences. Um, but I do think it probably comes in question of degree. So I think that it does make sense to consider. You know, some of the simpler animals as having a, a less rich and maybe therefore a less morally salient degree of sentience. So, you know, if you, the classic thought experiment, you can only save a human child or a chicken from a burning building, I will save the human every time. Now, that's probably a <clears throat> anthropocentric bias that, you know, I'd struggle to erose. But the, I think there's also a logic to that as well. And I do think that the, the sentience of the human child has a, has a higher moral valence. So I think there are degrees. So it's a long way of answering your question. I almost see this sentientism as just setting a baseline. It says if some, if we have a decent confidence that something seems like it is capable of experiencing suffering or flourishing, we should include it in our moral consideration. But sentientism doesn't tell you then how to resolve the trade-offs of different interests. It doesn't help tell you how to prioritize. It doesn't tell you whether you should apply rights or there's so much to fight about mm -hmm. there. So I see it setting a very simple baseline that just says, let's at least not exclude any suffering being from our moral consideration. 
But what you can do then is then layer many things onto that. So you can take a capabilities approach about thinking about different capabilities. You could take an approach of thinking about different richnesses of sentience or different sapience that might warrant a greater degree of moral consideration. And you, you would also layer on a relational approach to that because given that, you know, I think all sentient beings are deeply embedded in meshes of relationships with other sentient beings and with the environment, those relationships are deeply important to the quality of experience of each sentient being. So the, mm. the sort of relational approach, I think, is deeply valuable, even though I filter it all back through the moral salience of the experience of each sentient being. So I think there are lots of different layers and characteristics and other things you can build on top of that, including moral systems, you know, so, um, you know, whether you take a consequentialist utilitarian approach or a deontological approach or a virtue ethics approach, that's fine for sentientism as long as you include all sentient beings in your moral consideration. So mm -hmm. I still set that baseline at quite a serious level, which implies that we'd recognize that needlessly causing harm or death to any sentient being, even a minimally sentient being, would be a moral negative. And therefore, we, you know, we'd need a serious justification to, to cause that. Whereas others will say, well, we give you know, some moral consideration, but it's not enough to stop us farming them, for example. And to my mind, that effectively is zero moral consideration. You know, if you're willing to force breed a sentient being mm -hmm. and then harm it and then separate it from its family and then kill it because you like the taste of it, in practical terms, that's zero moral consideration. So so it's a baseline, but it's, it's also quite a firm one about seeing needless suffering and harm as negative to any being that's sentient, if that makes sense. That's a long rambling answer. No, no, no. It, it's, it's good because, and I, I'm glad you touched more on the relational thing, because as you know, that was something that I came into not, not sort of having a, a, a real strong interest in it to begin with, but realizing that some of these questions seemed, like you said, very fuzzy and perhaps even unresolvable, at least given our current levels of information. So I thought, you know, how can we sort of take what we know about the properties approach and the relational yeah. approach. And I sort of gravitated toward the relational approach. And my own model for that had, as you kind of hinted at this, the uh, sort of the social milieu or dynamic as part of it nested within the larger ecological system. And I think really importantly, when I talk about my my normative project that came along with this kind of almost as a, as an afterthought, but I found out it was really integral to the whole uh, answer to the question of robot rights was in a critical environmental ethic, you at least allow for the decentering of humans from that moral yeah. calculus. Yeah. That is something that not a lot of people want to do, but I think irrespective of which, you know, if you're taking your approach or my approach, if you're not willing to decenter the human, you're pretty much never going to have the opportunity to have conflicts resolved in the way in which an animal, for example, could come out on top. Yeah. So it's it's allowing for that to happen, that and then, and then practically speaking, somehow working that into the institutions, which you know I sort of hint at as like you could use rights. I'm not saying that's the only answer, but it's a tool, yeah. But exactly. But absent that you really still cre sort of reify the same hierarchy that places minimally sentient, highly sentient beings lower on the pecking order than humans and then being able to justify harm to them eventually anyway. Yeah. And I think that's what the approaches you've taken and I've taken. And I think they, they do have quite a lot in common because both of them are they're, they're grounded in compassion. They're grounded in a, a recognition that while we're, you know, humans are the ones who are talking about this stuff, we want to try and move away from that anthropocentrism and and find some uh, 
more species independent grounding to the way we think about moral questions and there's enormous overlap there and in a way the synthesis i hope we might be able to find is that you know i I, i'm suggesting sentience as that sort of backstop as that bulwark against oppression and then you know we can work in all sorts of other rich diverse and pluralistic approaches on top of that as long as we don't allow any of those pluralistic approaches to chip away at that that sort of safety safety backup that baseline that says we will not exclude any suffering from our moral consideration um but so i think there's there's much you know synergy and synthesis in 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 the different approaches it's been fascinating to have you talk through that because the the final section of the conversation really is to think about the future you can go as sci-fi as you like or you can think of more, more immediate concerns but if we imagine a world where you know more of the eight billion people on the planet adopt our somewhat shared project of a broader moral circle a more pluralistic compassionate approach how do you think that will play out or how do you hope that might play out for i guess human ethics animal ethics even robot rights and ai rights as those hove into view because obviously you've done fascinating work through um your global network for the study of human rights and environmental rights and your the earth system governance project and so you're already involved in a number of movements that are sort of thinking about shaping that future how do you think about how it might evolve you could look at (laughs) it's a big question (laughs) yeah well because part of it is you know do we start with the animal side or do we start with the technological side i think the human rights part of it is interesting but um i think we're going to see continue to see evolutions in that way as well when you get to things like transhumanism again a lot of the queer theory out there is is doing very interesting work on on bringing insights through their theory, through reading of texts that is totally new to me, but I think is very valuable. So there's definitely some still evolution to happen in the human rights context. Yeah. But then animals, you know, I think, uh, and we talked about this quite a bit, but I think one of the problems with trying to envision a future where there's better animal rights protection is the nature of uh, deep-seated convictions and cultures and religions that that already have that kind of baked in that they have a particular approach. Some of that approach might run afoul of the kind of sentientism that you are advocating for. And again, I don't I don't want to wade too far into those waters because I I don't feel like I have the language or the expertise to really say why certain practices are, are wrong or things like that. Um, and I, and I, I would be comfortable with the fact that other people can say like you are that. If it is, you know, the senseless slaughter of a sentient being, like that's probably not something we would want to have. Um, maybe you could find other ways of doing it. Maybe there'd be, you know, thinking about the technological side. Maybe there's more artificial, synthetic ways of doing the same kind of thing. Yeah, um, clean meat that, ideas and. Yeah, which which you know they present their own issues, but they sort of involve a kind of evolution technologically, perhaps ethically. Uh, that might be uh, fruitful moving forward. And then on the technological side, you know, I raised this example in my book, and it's kind of like what what the I Am Mother movie also gets at, which is if you didn't know the difference between a human and say, uh, you know, a synthetic or humanoid robot, how would you want to treat that entity? How would you want to see other people treat that entity? And what kinds of impacts do you think that would have on morality in general? And I think Although uh, Ishiguro, the famous android science you know, roboticist, uh, wrote to me in a very pithy email that he thinks that robots are going to go the direction of animal rights, interestingly. And we see some people making that sort of argument that it's kind of almost more akin to animal welfare. We shouldn't do it because or we shouldn't harm these things because of, you know, it's noxious to our own senses yeah. uh, and those sorts of things. 
I would say that maybe that's likely to happen initially, but if we get to sort of maximally humanoid looking robots to the point where it's in virtually indistinguishable, that's gonna pose, I think, some really interesting questions about how we should default from sort of like a yeah, raw yeah. veil of ignorance, right? If you didn't know what you were interacting with was human or not, how would you choose to proceed interacting with it? If we take a kind of uh, ethical approach that views anything within our orbit as a potentially of uh, moral significance, we kind of address that issue. But if you construct these separations that say humans are this and animals are that and robots are that, then you have sort of created the hierarchy that affords you the opportunity to engage in the kinds of um, activities that both of us, I think, would argue lead to negative outcomes for society writ large. So yeah. I think it's really a process that's going to evolve over time. I don't know because of the kind of pluralism that we see throughout the world. And I mean, just think about the numbers, China and India ramping up their meat consumption because of the more Western diets, because of the greater affluence. That seems like maybe the more immediate concern that is probably not going to be tamped down in the immediate future because they are be become they're acquiring a taste for something that they couldn't have yeah. before. And that's viewed as sort of social progress, interestingly. Yeah. Um, you know, and then that's having lots of environmental consequences about the ability of us to satisfy those demands. So I think if anything, and I don't want to be too bleak, but on the animal rights side, I think on a global sense, we're actually going to take a step back before we take a step forward. Mm. So it's really important that people like you are putting you know, the arguments out there, reminding us about the ethical concerns that we have, keeping in mind that there are people who, who view this as progress. And uh, one example of this comes from a friend of mine who comes from a, a working class Mexican background. And he gave a really interesting example of his sort of animal ethics. And he's a, a self-avowed Marxist and and all that stuff. Um, what he said was that when he was growing up, you know, they ate lots of rice and beans because it was cheap. Yeah. And it was only when his father had the financial wherewithal to provide something more that they could have lechon asado or pastor or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, it was yeah. viewed as sort of a boon for their family. And it made them proud because their father was able to provide that for them. And so, you know, he is very aware of the animal ethics concerns and, you know, human suffering, animal suffering and all that. But at the same time, from a kind of economic class perspective, there's a sort of social value that eating meat had for his family growing up. Yeah. And I, I, that's a good sort of hard case for me to go back and say, could I tell him he's wrong for having those feelings? Gosh, I don't know. But yeah. you see that playing out in the developing world. And so I think we're going to see a, a regression before we see a progression towards more ethical treatment of animals, at least. Yeah, there's certainly a risk. And, and it's... Um... I think there is this dynamic where I think many ethical ethical vegans or people in the animal advocacy movement would just love us to be able to use the sheer force of moral argument to you know persuade everybody to to stop a more realistic approach given how powerful those social norms are and those cultural norms are partly because they give they do give a lot of pleasure and uh, you know flourishing to the humans that hold those beliefs right they're deeply important but because they hold us quite strongly often i think it might be those types of alternative technologies whether it's you know reminding people that rice and beans are really cheap and <laughs> ubiquitous and available or the clean meats and the plant-based technologies and the alternatives that just make the alternatives so cheap and fast and ubiquitous and easy and you know as an aside much more healthy and less environmentally damaging that people are almost freed by the technology to then you know 
change their ethics to say, well, yeah, I never did like needlessly harming you know, sentient animals either. So there's an interesting dynamic there about the technologies. And I think that also plays into the dynamic that we're looking at with India and China in that, you know, one of the more hopeful conversations I had more recently was that rather than following our, you know, path, fossil fuels, in- intensive animal agriculture, actually some of those cultures, partly because they have some elements of a more compassionate, broader moral circle in uh, some elements of Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism and various other ethics you know there's enormous prevalence of lifestyles that don't depend on animal farming historically and because of their technological innovation which is increasingly leapfrogging ahead of where some of the western economies are that you know i think you're probably right that we'll take a step back before we take a step forward but there's also a chance they might just sidestep you know the painful path we've down been down completely and find radically new ways both when it comes to animal agriculture, but hopefully also on the climate front as well. And, and you know, the Western economies that you and I sit comfortably and will end up following in their wake. But let's see, that, see how that works. But you touched on another fascinating angle where quite a few of the people who are involved in this sort of nascent amorphous uh, sentientism community, such as it, as it is that's grown up, they're understandably very focused on the sentient beings that definitely exist today. So 8 billion humans and you know, have a many trillion animals in the wild and farmed as well. So some of them see the questions about artificial intelligence or robot ethics as a bit of an intellectual distraction. But I, I think it's really important because it's another angle that forces us to challenge our own ethics. And as you say, we can't, you know, as soon as you start looking into those fields and you run through some of the thought experiments you've laid out or you look even watch some of the sci-fi, which, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, I think we both share a love for, you can't just say humans matter anymore. And as soon as you say, okay, well, if it isn't just being human that matters, what is it that really gives something moral worth? And whether you're thinking about artificial intelligence or robots or something else, one, I think it forces us to crystallize and refine and you know renegotiate our own human ethics and go, hold on, that way of categorizing certain types of humans makes no sense anymore. You know, we need to have a more universal human compassion. I think it also plays into the animal ethics field as well. And it's fascinating to have conversations with people who are, you know, many people who are sort of more ready to grant rights and ethical consideration to robots and AI than they are to, you know, pigs and cows and chickens. So so, so I think it's just intellectually, I, I find it interesting as a topic anyway, and who knows how quickly it might become practically relevant as well. I've, I'd argue it already is. But I think it's a healthy way of just refreshing all of our ethical and moral thinking more generally too. So what I wound up doing was I set out to answer that question about robots because I found it so intriguing and yeah. it, it married, you know, interest in science fiction with my work on environmental rights, but in so doing it, and there's a, an article version of chapter four, which is on the rights of nature that's published in earth system governance. It's, and it's also open access. I realized that what I had done was actually to provide more of a kind of two-step approach to the to the rights of non-humans in general. Yes. So, it, but it, you know, by that time, by writing the end of the book, I was like, I can't just rename it and say the rights of everything or the rights of non-humans. <laughs> but the article was an attempt to just extract some of that from one of the chapters and say, hey, here's the general argument. Because especially whether we're talking about ecocentric uh, ethics or w- what I write about in that article, which is Earth System Law, there's always this kind of nod toward non-humans. And, you know, thinking in terms of systems and all that, but they never quite get to the point that I, I essentially got to in the book. And I, to maybe come full circle in a way, I don't really exclude animals from that. What I've, what I've done in, in the third chapter of the book is to 
kind of lay out the discussion about animal rights, yeah. show where maybe it's flawed in some ways. And then by the end of the book, I say, here's a framework and here's an ethic. And if we piece those together, that will give us this one-two punch that will allow us to answer some questions about non-humans in general. So yeah. I think even though the book is ostensibly about robots, if I were to have reconfigured the title, it actually would be something like Rights for Non-Humans, of which animals would clearly be part. And I think some of the things that we've talked about today, decentering humans from the, you know, the center, or as environmental or critical environmental law says, the center but not the middle, thinking about you know, pluralism and all those sorts of things. What I've hoped to have done is to provide some language for animal rights theorists as well, even though it's sort of seemingly through this exploration of, of robots. So I didn't mean to say that robots were sort of the more important of the two yeah. questions. And then we, like you mentioned, we have people who say, this is such a ridiculous question when we have people who are depriving, being deprived of human rights. My answer to that is always, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah. And the fact is that these questions are going to only become more important as the technology improves. And it doesn't mean that the animal questions are any less significant at all. Uh, and in fact, there's a there was a graduate student who wrote a paper which was really interesting on, she talks about the animal question and the machine question. It was the first person I saw who tried to do a really good job from a philosophical standpoint to talk about both of them. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of do that, but on a much bigger scale, you know, she, granted, she's only writing in the form of, a, of an article. Animals are absolutely still central to that whole argument. And I think that anyone who is interested in animal rights would come away saying, you know, oh, well, it's not just, you know, that artificial intelligence could look like a human and therefore it's important. Yeah. It, it really is an animal that is in a social environment, in an ecological context in which animals provide certain important functions. You could take all that and make an argument for animal rights as well. So that's, I mean, it's not just necessarily a plug for the book, but also I did think really seriously about how I could improve upon some of the extant animal rights approaches because I, I saw these discontinuities between them, like some of the ones that we've talked about. Yeah. And I think that's why your work is so powerful, because, you know, it's almost a trope, but the tribalism between the different academic fields and the separation between different academic fields is, I find, as, a, as you know, an amateur who, you know, loves reading about this stuff from the outside, deeply frustrating, because I think they can learn so much from each other. And that's really what, you know, one of the things your book does brilliantly is it's taking really deep thought about animal advocacy and animal ethics, really deep thought about artificial intelligence and robot ethics, and and also, you know, human, human ethics, too, as well as the ecological thinking and environmental ethics thinking and um, tries to integrate the whole thing. And I think it's a, a deeply powerful way of doing it that I think will um, help us improve, you know, human ethics as well as non-human ethics. So, well, yeah. thanks very much for the words of encouragement. And I, I, I think the best way to describe it really is sort of integrationist. I yeah. mean, that's, that's essentially what I've done is tried to say, okay, we have the robot ethics or AI ethics, animal ethics, uh, environmental ethics, what what could we extract from them? How could we combine them profitably to answer all of these questions? The yeah. machine question, the animal question, and so on. And I, and I I hope that it is a continuation of some of these discourses, but also that it pushes those conversations forward to where people can say, oh, I could be an animal rights theorist, but also care about X, Y, and Z. Or I could be someone who's really interested in the technology, but that has to come with a kind of ecological sensitivity, which includes animals. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's part of what I hope to have achieved. Yeah, agree, agree. Go broad, but really help distill and integrate a sort of essential elements to the whole, to the whole piece. So, yeah. Well, that's 
been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Josh, so much for talking me through both your personal philosophical journey, but you know it ties beautifully into your your current work as well. So I, I, I wish you well, and um, I hope everyone listening to and watching this will go and, if not buy it, download a copy. So, or what's the best way of people finding your work and following following you? So um, you can go to my website, which is just www.joshgellers.com. Uh, that's G-E-L-L-E-R-S. Uh, and I'm also very active on Twitter, as, as you well know. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's just at Josh Gellers. But, you know, the good news is that the book is totally available open access. And the article that I mentioned is also open access. Brilliant. So free for anyone to download anywhere, anytime from, you know, any place on any kind of technological entity. So, yeah, and I, I really appreciate being able to have this conversation with you. And I look forward to conversing in the future. Yeah, likewise. I will see you on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> at the very least. Well, yeah. take care, Josh. Thank you again so much. Bye, Jamie. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?